Welcome and happy Friday. It's January 6, 2017. Happy New Year, everybody. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler, and we're starting a new year here, and I'm starting it with a cold today that just came on in 20 minutes ago. I'm here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer. Laura Redman, who's our deputy digital director. Who also has a cold. I think it's just going down. It's cold time. Sorry, man. Cold time. Catherine LeGrave, senior editor. Do you have a cold? Starting, yeah. Starting. All right. Work on that. <laughs> and I, I've had mine, so maybe I just gave it to all of you. Maybe, maybe, maybe a guest appearance by Sebastian Modak, who is an editor and a podcast producer, and who is producing at this very moment, sitting behind the very, very, very nefarious Pro Tools controls. We're going to talk this week about travel in 2017, and it's a little bit different from the last podcast that we did, which is about where to go in 2017. Today, we're going to look at some of the changes that are coming to travel in 2017, some things that are going to be different, some things that we're keeping an eye on and that we think travelers need to be keeping an eye on in the coming year. And we've reported on a number of these things in the last couple of weeks. The first one that I think is worth touching on that may make a big difference to some travelers, and it's going to be very interesting, is this new thing called CLEAR, which kind of gives me the heebies, just the name of it. But Catherine, can you explain to people what CLEAR is? Sure. So CLEAR has been around for a few years, but it actually just recently got a boost. Delta, I think, bought a 5% share in April. So it's going to be appearing at four of the busiest airports in 2017. So you can see it at O'Hare, LAX, JFK, and LaGuardia. And so what it is I is Atlanta. Atlanta. Sorry, yes, Atlanta's also there. That's four, right? Atlanta, JFK, LaGuardia, and LAX. Yeah. Uh, And then they've been at 17 airports up until now, right? Mm -hmm. But they were like kind of low profile. They're kind of low profile because people say like, what's the difference between that and TSA PreCheck? You know, are they competitors? They're not really competitors. Think of it as sort of two parts of the journey. So TSA PreCheck is the part of security that, you know, you don't have to take off your shoes. You don't have to take off your coat um, and take out your laptop. So clear deals with the terrible part that we all hate where you're in that long security line and you have to show your boarding pass and your you know, driver's license or passport. So Clear lets you just go to a similar kiosk and put in your fingerprint and it'll scan your eye and you know your passport information, that'll all be there. So then you can go to the front of the security line. So How do you get it? Well, you can enroll at all of the airports, so you can just enroll there. It's sort of a similar background check to like applying for a credit card, you put in your passport information. So it's pretty simple, actually. Do you have to go through an interview like you do with uh, with PreCheck? No. Or any of that stuff? What's this deal with the eye scan? Because I'm too short for most of the, uh, I don't know, when I go through global entry, it only ever shows my forehead. Okay. So do you, like, how does this work? Are you too I, short for it? Am I? I don't know. Tell don't me about the so. eye scan. Um, well, you know, you It just... uses a Galaxy Note 7. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty simple from, I, I'm not a clear member, Mark. How did you get Here's yours, where you Mark? come in, right? I am a clear member, or I am, I've just enrolled. I'm a Delta Diamond. I travel enough that I have Delta's top tier, and it is a new benefit. It sounds like a sorority. Well, so that's another, it's... yeah, before you get started on that, that's another perk. The reason that this is sort of coming up in the news is that Delta announced that, you know, certain members would be given a clear, I guess, membership for free. Um, clear is normally $179 for one year. If you have a SkyMiles account, you can get it from anywhere 
from 79 to 99 or free, or free. as Mark, Mark and said, you can yeah. I can enroll anyone I want allied to my account for 50 bucks right mm-hmm. so if you don't want to pay 179 ask someone you know who flies <laughs> Delta Mark a lot do you me. have to be diamond Tweet or can lower levels of status? lower levels get discounted Discounts. membership and okay. I get it as a thrown in perk which is nice because perks are sort of being whittled down or winnowed away what to me was counterintuitive was given that my profile shows I originated JFK or LaGuardia at all times, I was offered this amazing benefit and I went to enroll and then went to find out how I did it and it said, coming soon, uh. with no date, no. So I'm a member, but I don't understand the benefits. And I will say, years ago, I interviewed Steve Brill, the magnet, who invented Clear. Really? And this was trialed in the early aughts and it struggled because essentially it creates a I'm rich enough to bypass security Mm -hmm. feeling, which really settled very ill. And I'm curious how they've changed it since then. Well, for one thing, they've lowered the price. I mean, Clear used to exist, I want to say, in 2010 under a different name. I think it was called Fly Clear. And it was not successful, very successful. And they've brought it back and they've cut the price. So, and, and now with this Delta backing, I think you know, you're know you going to see it at these Delta hubs and the perks for Delta members, I think. But don't you feel like the TSA PreCheck and Global Entry have softened the appetite for this a little bit, Mark? Because people are paying for access. That's what's happening. Yeah, but the original Clear, which was 2003, Steve Burrell founded the original mm. Clear, it felt very much like, I remember asking him, how can you justify people being rich enough to be checked less at security? And he didn't really answer that question. He changed the subject. I think since then, we've learned that things like global entry, it's fingerprinted and it feels much more thorough. So, yeah, you're paying for it, but it doesn't feel like a sort of loose thing at the edges of security that people can slip through. We're fingerprinted for global entry. I wonder how successful, would I pay for it if it were 179? No. But you have to think of it also as, again, like I said, one of the two parts. Because TSA PreCheck, a lot of people want it, but there's such a delay that it's harder to get. It sort of hit a snag with this expansion plan, right? So more people are looking to and clear and f- saying, I can skip to the front of the security line and take care of that part. And TSA of- PreCheck doesn't apply on international flights. Exactly. And TSA PreCheck, I still have to wait in that long line to get my boarding pass checked. So it's taking care of that other half of the equation. And if it's easier for me to get, sure, it's a bit more expensive. But That's an important distinction because you still have to go through security. Yeah. You just, you're just getting to cut to the front of the line, which is probably what pisses everybody off. Because they off. used to have a separate line. Uh-huh. When it was originally, I remember standing next to the clear lines, which were always empty because no one paid for it, which is why it struggled and had to go through various versions. But there was this sort of strange VIP room-esque line, which felt like there was a metaphorical red carpet Mm. and maybe, you know, warm towels and a glass of champagne at security. (laughs) And it just scanned as wrong in the way that TSA pre-doesn't. Well, it created a hierarchical situation where in this Absolutely. case, it's really just a difference of $79. I mean, global entry is 100 mm-hmm. and that gives you a five-year membership yeah. and you are a known traveler. It, it's kind of like an unspoken thing that I've, I'm really, I, I enjoy. It's one of the confidence boosters I have. I travel enough that my number is recorded when I fly with different airlines and even if the TSA pre-check doesn't pop up automatically on my boarding pass, like. I'm not getting pulled aside as often when I go through security, you know. It just it feels like I'm paying for a little more than just a quick pass and, to the and, front and line. And also I would encourage people the one thing when you think about travel fees, 
an awful lot of rewards credit cards mm-hmm. have rebates for travel fees. So you should always double check, call your credit card company if you're not sure what you get and say, okay, what are the, in the small print, what do you offer me? Because they're not going to foreground some of these benefits. They want to minimize whether you use them. And find out if you actually have 200 bucks to spend this year only on travel fees. Maybe you spend it on Clear. Well, we have a story on our site called How to Get Global Entry for Free, and it's all about credit cards that have this perk. So it's kind of what you said, if you have travel credit, $300, you can apply to it, or if it's just part of the perk. So yeah, absolutely look into that. Back to this notion of hierarchy, because I feel like you guys are talking about something, but everywhere, you know, having just been flying, you know, a bunch of days, both in Europe and here, there's hierarchy everywhere, right? Like there's, there, there are already different lines for people with Sky Priority on just sticking with Delta, right? Like there's a whole separate line for those people to check in. There's a separate line through security at some airports. It doesn't seem to be universal, but certainly at some airports, I've gone through that line, you know, and everybody else is sweating over here and you're just kind of like waltzing up to security. Again, it's very much, it, there's no iris scan or anything like that. You're still going through security, mm-hmm. but you're going literally in a separate line. The towels and champagne have yet to materialize, but I'm <laughs> waiting for them. Maybe at diamond level. So like this notion of hierarchies and people paying for different levels of access, you know, whether it's seats, you know, we, we've written about the fact that when you get on the plane, the first class seats, which we know are massively more expensive, the business class seats are more expensive. And we've written about the fact that that actually generates more like anxiety and anger in people. But yet it's a fact of travel life. The stratifications are slimmer now, though. I mean, we're talking, it used to just be, you know, economy first class, right? And then economy, business, first class. And now there's basic economy, economy, premium economy, business class, first class. And the differences between each are pretty nuanced at this point. It's a matter of, are you paying for overhead bin space? Are you paying for an extra three quarters of an inch of legroom? So walk through those for a second. What's basic economy versus economy? So basic economy is a fair class below economy. You have stricter carry-on rules. It kind of varies by airline. But so United, Delta, American have all announced basic economy fares. It's kind of similar to the European low-cost models. You know, I can't book a seat ahead of time, so there's no guarantee if I'm going to sit in that terrible seat by the bathroom. I think United said, you know, you you can't have a carry-on that's going to go in the overhead bin, which is something again, we see on European models where you have to actually pay to put your overhead in the carry-on bin. You don't get certain rewards. You still accumulate air miles, but... Um, Radically lower, right? Right. See, what I'd be curious about, especially the basic economy fares, which are essentially ways for the flag carriers of different countries or the legacy carriers in the U.S. to compete against the upstart, successful frontier spirit... A, you know, I'm reminded when they go low, we go high. I wouldn't compete with them because you're not going after a customer that is a net profit for you anyway. And I'd love to know if we have any flight attendants or onboard staff listening, how they're going to deal with basic economy. When there are people on a United plane on a basic economy ticket who sneak a bag up up in the overhead bin, it's not the reservation agents who have to deal with it. It's the woman or man who's going to be on your flight for the next two hours who's had to have a fight with a passenger about how they have to take the bag down. And to me, what troubles me about basic economy is not how dumb and unstrategic I think it is for the airlines, but more Although that it, you clearly think it is dumb <laughs> I think it's strategic. incredibly dumb. And if you compete on price to that level, it's called a price war because there are casualties, and the casualties are normally self-inflicted. 
But my worry is, and my sympathy is, with the onboard staff who already are glorified yeah. baggage handlers, yeah. tessellating bags into overhead bins, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. I, I, That's I, a good point. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like uh, those people are already having to police. And just in the last two weeks, I witnessed this, like kind of throwdowns over where's my coat gonna go? You know, can this bag fit horizontally or or not horizontally or vertical? But but you know what I mean. Like, does it have to go sideways or can it go this way? And like, I have three bags. How did you get on with three bags? These kinds of things are already just a fact of life for these folks. Now they're gonna have to figure out: Are you in basic economy? Are you in premium economy, these striations just make their jobs much harder. It'll be interesting to see. The bags are such a contentious issue already. You know, I wonder if they're going to tag it differently, like the European airlines that I mentioned. But when my, they tag it differently, who enforces that? Well, it has the to be, you know, I had, I had a flight attendant walking down the aisle do it on, believe it or not, an airline called Wizz Air, which does this, a Hungarian, I think it's Hungarian, Eastern European, and, and they really enforce it. But you're right. You already have sort of enough problems. Well, it's but a, what it's it a pay like for what you get experience, though, yeah. right? And I think the problem is the low-cost carriers have us. We know what to expect on Norwegian. Expectations. Yeah, exactly. And United, Delta, American, sorry. But those are the big three carriers, right? If they are playing this game, do most travelers know what they're getting? You know, it's, it's just communication is so unclear, I feel like, at this point. I agree with you, and I, and I do feel like it changes a lot. But by the same token, I will also say that... And we've talked about this before, too. I'm not sure that I'm opposed to a pay-for-extra-stuff or even pay-for-basic-stuff model, right? I'm but, not but, either. Because what I'm happens now is a food fight, right? Like, you get, like, again, having just gone through this three times, there's a fight to get to the front of the line, even to get to the front of the, you know, sky priority line or whatever, the, the sort of, like, so that you can get baggage space. And if somebody tells me, throw an extra 40 bucks at the problem and you're solved and you can just mm -hmm. like waltz on whenever you want and like your bag space is reserved, I'm happy to do that, actually. But the thing is, I think it's all about expectations. If you fly, and Laura talks about this when she when she took a budget carrier transatlantically, it it is because you hadn't, I mean, you should tell that story, but we've talked about this. It's more expectations versus whether I'm happy paying for things, but tell me up front or don't make yeah. me sit next to someone else who it feels like hasn't paid for the privilege. Right. Agreed. I mean, it's. I know I'm the contrary opinion in this situation, <laughs> but I, I just feel like we are setting a bar way too low as passengers. And the only way that we get to have a say in this game right now is where we spend our money. Mm -hmm. And if we're spending our money on airlines that are very content with poor customer service, but saying, you know, you get what you paid for. It, you need to go online and you need to check page four of the document that you are, you are signing when you buy your ticket. You know, like that's literally where you find some of the information before you get on these planes and to find out that, you know, meals come at a cost and they only come at certain times during a flight. And if you don't pre-order your meal, you may not eat for like three hours into a seven or eight hour flight. And I'm sorry, but like I was sitting next to a woman who was 27 weeks pregnant and she couldn't get a meal. I mean, what's up with that? And it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you want to make a request, it doesn't allow for mistakes. It doesn't allow for people with special circumstances. I feel like it's just kind of like money talks, that's it. And you have to, you know, you have to play by our rules. And if you don't get our rules, it's your fault. So, well, I think we're gonna see, you know, more of that, this a la carte pricing model, because, you know, airlines, first of all, they're trying to compete with it, especially with the advent of, you know, Norwegian, as we're talking about, which has sort of changed the transatlantic 
game. Really, but they've been trying. You know, Freddie Laker in the seventies and early eighties did incredibly cheap transatlantic flights, and he couldn't make it work. Mm-hmm. That was partly to do with the unions, and partly to do with the fact that it was so recently that American-based carriers had been deregulated. There were lots of changed situations. But one of the rules of business is you really don't want your your appeal to be defined solely by price. Walmart can do that because it's a giant totally economies agree. of scale. I business. agree with that, but these are two different discussions because you're Not talking about. I'm, I'm saying you can have a low cost, long haul carrier that isn't a la carte that still provides a quality experience on a quality plane. I don't think a la carte is the answer to all our problems. But I don't think you can run a business charging $99 a flight from the US to Europe and still give people meals and you know complete service. It's but has economic- anyone taken that $99 flight yet? They, I thought that's they advertise- the one that you took. No, no. I'm, these are all still $400, $500, $600 flights, even Norwegian. They are advertising $69, $99 flights. That hasn't happened yet. I don't, right, so I don't know anyone gonna, who's booked that yet. No, no. Um, you know, the Norwegian thing, that'll happen, I think it's in June, where they kick off these routes to Ireland from Boston and New York. So it'll be interesting to see. But, I mean, they're going to have the same fees, probably even more, right? They have to, as you're saying, Brad, pick up money somewhere. It's going to be in the meals. It's going to be in the bags. It's going to be in anything that they can And find. we know they're a business. I'm not asking them to run as nonprofits. I just think there is, there is something psychologically... Airlines have made a big mistake. In in the mid-1970s, when airlines were deregulated, one of the CEOs of the airline stood in front of the Senate committee who deregulated it and used language I would not use in public to say, you can't do this, you'll ruin the industry. And it ruined the industry. In February, we talk about fare classes. American is has a new back-end system, which is Sabre, one of the airline industry's fulfillment facilities where it is selling premium economy on international routes. So we have the first premium economy when we talk about Mm -hmm. different classes coming in as a paid for, not main cabin extra, not a bonus. This is you pay more and you are in halfway to business class. That starts in February. So in 2017, this is really going to change. United and Delta will follow on, but American already has planes flying, both domestically and internationally, with premium economy configured cabins. Those are free right now. From February, that slightly comfier seat is going to cost you a chunk more. And when we think about, is it worth it? 2017 is going to be the, the era of, I'm flying, what's worth it to me? Have you flown a lot of premium economy flights so far? What's your gut take on it? You don't have to talk about any specific. I would never take, if I look at the offerings from the US-based carriers, which are essentially economy with the hyacinth bouquet of economy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) economy with aspirations and perhaps unfulfilled aspirations. Overachieving economy? Well, economy that thinks it's a little posher than it is. I would take many international carriers' premium economy in a heartbeat. British Airways, Singapore, Cathay, Virgin Australia's premium economy is astonishingly good. Better per dollar, probably, than the business class I've flown on Virgin Australia. I would just steer clear of any US-based carrier. Fly that premium economy route to London, but make sure you're not on an American plane, because the BA version of premium economy is better. Britain invented premium economy. Virgin invented it. BA followed very far on. They've had a long time to perfect it, and boy, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of flight, there are going to be some additional changes to identification rules. Catherine, not to keep you on the hot seat, but 
You've reported on this. What mm-hmm. What's coming? So bad news if you're from, I'll just read it, Kentucky, Maine, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Washington. Because if you're from any of, or, or if you have a driver's license from any of those states, starting on January 22nd, 2018, you're not going to be able- January 22nd, so coming 2018. Right? 2018, sorry, oh, but- Oh, 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 okay. But no, no, keep in mind that it takes a while to get a passport, right? So this is news that- the Department of Homeland Security has started promoting now. You know, you go to Chicago here, you go to Minneapolis, you're going to see a sign in the airport that says, hey, if you have an ID from one of these states, it's not going to work as identification come 2018. So driver's licenses will no longer be sufficient for a domestic flight. Right, as identification, because they do not, from these states, they don't meet the security requirements. So this is just part of the... Now, this goes back to... I guess the federal government released a set of criteria that mm-hmm. that identification needed to meet, yes. and they gave the states time to get their driver's licenses to meet those criteria, and these states have not done that. Is right. that correct? So this is the Real ID Act, which was yes. passed after September 11th, where people said... Or September the government, 11th, f- 16 years ago. Exactly, where they said, you know, you need to get the driver's licenses in order, and they all have to be sort of this cohesive standard across the board, because it's way too easy to get a driver's license in Washington without these background checks and sort of stringent requirements. And some states have complied. Most of them have. A lot of them have said, you know, we don't really feel comfortable. That's asking for a lot. So a lot of them are complying. Some of them are. But those are the states that really haven't made progress and have petitioned for an appeal. Remind us that list, because I feel like people (laughs) were going to want to rewind. Okay, here we go. Kentucky, Maine, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Washington. And I know we all said 2018, that's a long way off, but it's important to note that these changes, you know, can't be made overnight, right? Right. So changing the legislation for a driver's license, changing the requirements for, you know, application for a driver's license and and giving you a driver's license, you know, that's not going to happen overnight. So that's sort of the point of the story that we wrote on the site is if you have a license from one of these states, you should start getting well, a so passport Essentially, now. the minute you hear this, mm-hmm. as you listen to us, if you're from one of those states and you think you might want to take a trip next year, if you're saving up for a great trip, passport now. Yeah. Just get passport, passport now. And there are, um, well, because only 24 states currently comply with the practices set by the Real ID Act. There are a lot of states that have extensions, um, I think, until October 10th, 2017. So again, keep checking the list to make sure your state... Yeah, so the list could grow or shrink if if states get their act together, so so to speak. That's why that still means you'll need a new license, You'll need a new license. So that means you're going to the DMV no matter what, or you're going to get a passport. You just said an extension to October 22nd, 2017? 2017. Ah, so... We are in this weird position where, so in other words, what would you say, Catherine, if we're traveling after, say, March, is it you should have a passport as well as your state ID just as a CYA? What do you think? Traveling after March 2017? No, March this year. Like, in other words, how do I make sure Mm -hmm. that I'm at the airport and I don't ever have an, oh, whoops, you have the wrong papers kind of moment? Is it like get a passport now, keep it with you whenever you travel domestically or internationally until this transition period is over and they've sorted it out? I think you're fine in March. I am, you know, I would start checking the list in March. I mean, I would if if travelers were me, I guess I would always be checking that list. But check it in March, you know, continue to check it. And as we inch nearer to October and your state, you know, hasn't met the extension criteria, it's going to go on to that 
list of, you know, you need a new license yeah, in 2018. Well, and also, if you get to October and you have to get a new license, there's mm-hmm. going to be some time involved with that, too, yeah. right, I presume. Yes. States are different about that. But. States are different. Well, it takes a while to get a passport, too. There was an influx of passport applications because a lot of people had expiration dates this year. So typically, it'll take maybe like a couple of weeks to get a passport. But in some cases, it was taking up to six months. I feel like there was an egregiously long time period. So I'm not saying it's going to take you six months to get a passport. I don't want to put that out there. That's not true. But give yourself at least, I'd say give yourself a month if you're going to be traveling. I would also vouch, if you're more pressed on time than on money, remember services like It's Easy, which Mm -hmm. is a visa and passport expediting service. They have great relationships with consulates, passport agencies. So if you are caught on the hop, don't panic immediately. There are ways to solve it. It It will cost you some money. Places like itseasy.com, they are legitimate, trustworthy facilitators. But don't get caught on the hop. As you listen to us, if your passport's not up to date or you don't have a passport yet, just file that application now, and it's a great way of knowing if there's a mess at the end of the year, you won't miss that Thanksgiving flight. Well, And remember, too, that if your passport's set to expire this year, at least three months before that expiration date, you should be applying for a new one because many countries won't let you in if you have less than three months to go. Yeah, I mean, if this podcast does nothing, go check your passport and check your your expiration date and just make sure that you're cool because you don't want to be caught in a position of having to expedite that or finding yourself where you can't expedite that. That's not a good thing. I just got my New York State ID out and I thought, what what time, when does it expire? Do I need to (laughs) renew it? So exactly the same way. And I think it's a bit like when you go into a meeting and people say, I hope everyone's phones are off and you're the one person who doesn't check, yeah. just check it. Just yeah. check. Do the Mark Elwood thing and put a calendar alert six months out to make sure your passport <laughs> doesn't expire. I think that's really smart. Yeah, it you is know? really smart. Good rule of thumb. Aren't there passport changes too this year? I mean, your passport's going to get more security functions. It's going to look prettier. It says more illustrations or, or different illustrations. More who knows? eagles. More, more eagles, flags. as I said. Who knows what that means? Raised ink. So when you sort of take the page in your hand and, and turn it up, um, it, it just makes it harder to copy. Can I just ask, like we, on Monday, Tuesday, when people were coming back, the TSA went down, some piece of the customs software. Customs went down. Customs, sorry, yeah. customs went down. It okay, was fine. awesome. And does anybody have a read on what that was all about yet? Have we had a report out of, of no, what? You know, it's it's sad. I, Catherine just whispered. <laughs> sorry, I was, flying. I was flying. Half <laughs> of us were flying during that, so we couldn't follow the latest news, but we experienced those lines. I mean, three of us were coming in the day, four of us were coming in the day, and I know my flight was a Swiss Air International flight that dumped out at the same time as an Ethiopian Air International flight, and there were two passport checkers letting people out. So the line was like a hundred something deep. It was at nine o'clock at night. It was the same day that we started talking about this problem, but it was at the very end of the day, and it came out in the beginning of the day. So. I, Even it, for American passport holders, because yes. I always assume that under that duress, those of us, I have global, I have a British passport, but I have global entry, I have a green card, so I'm a little bit different from a complete foreigner, but I always assume that global entry and American passport holders pull rank a little in crises. So global entry and diplomats did, but U.S. passports were in the same line. There was no distinction. They weren't even, the passport checkers weren't even behind their glass case. It was just two people out, you know manning lines it was terrifying yeah and i guess all all i would say about that really is that as we get more sophisticated with the technology that provides entry and that you know handles security 
And I flew through Gatwick, you know, over the holidays, and I saw some of their sort of, <laughs> some of their, um, you know, sort of security innovations, which are, you know, interesting. But the fact is that when that stuff goes down, you're back to the Stone Age mm-hmm. with everything. And there's nothing you can do about that as a traveler, but it's sort of like everybody just needs to be aware that while you can come into JFK and you can do the electronic processing of the passport and you can have your picture taken and all of that, and that seems like an advance over just waiting in a big, long line for some guy to look at you, A, the guy still has to look at you and compare you to the picture, and I'm not sure what the value add is there, but it happens. And B, when the machine goes down, like you're right back to it. So, you know, there's going to be a period of time where the technology but, but is shouldn't getting we, better. But be, shouldn't we be glad of this? I mean, I, I think deep down, I'm all for technology facilitating and, and easing our lives. But when it comes to real national security, not headline-grabbing, rhetoric-filled national security, when the system goes down, I trust a person more than a computer. I trust a really seasoned homeland security passport guy who's like, I just know that the passport looks right, but this guy is acting weird. He's scratching his nose too much. Whatever that tell, you know. And I, I think Sebastian might disagree with you about that. And I would also say this, that well, you have I... To say, you have to say why, because well, this is a radio show. Sorry. So. Y'all can't see Sebastian. <laughs> Sebastian Sebastian is a person of less than particularly pinkish, whitish skin tone. And so, therefore, he has a different experiences than Mark and I, for example, who have come through. And so he's been pulled aside practically every time you fly, right, Seb? So, like, you, you get pulled aside for the extra security check just the, because of the way that you look. It's basically racial anonymous, pro- profiling. Right? Yeah, like, let's, let's not fuck around with it. It's, it's racial profiling. And yet, but I also, but when I had my green card stolen, I also went to the crazy person room on the side. <laughs> but, Mark, you're crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brad. Um, no, but I remember saying to a Homeland Security person as I, I, I checked in at security and they said, green folder. And I was like, I know, crazy room, lady screaming in there. I know what's happening. And I said, you know, I was the victim of a crime and you do have my fingerprints and blood work on me in order to get a green card. So I'm probably quite verifiable. And the guy just said to me, are you arguing? Because you're here at our our pleasure. So would you like to argue about this or would you just like to do what I told you? And it did remind me that rightly or wrongly, and obviously I have a different experience from Seb, but rightly or wrongly at border security, which has become very politicized because it's seen as a sort of rugby ball that gets thrown between political parties. I actually, I want border security to be quite stringent. There are flaws in it, but I think it's easy to be flippant about it. But knowing how poorly coordinated passport communication is between countries, you can leave America on one country's passport and land in another with your second passport that you're not supposed to have and no one ever notices. Here again, we're back to the humans versus technology, and I'm going to take the technology position on this in opposition to you because you can leave and you can go to, you can leave the JFK with your American passport, you can land in Malpensa and use your Italian passport, and nobody may notice And part of the reason they may not notice is because sometimes they pay attention to the stamps in your passport, and sometimes they don't pay attention to the stamps in your passport. And sometimes the stamps in your passport are at ridiculously random overlaying, and nobody can read what the hell they say anyway. But, you know, I have an iPhone right here, 
it has a fingerprint sensor on it. It knows who I am. It's got like completely locked in on my what my identity is. It's basically unbreakable because of the way Apple sets up the security. And I long for the day at which like do the iris scan. I'm all for the iris scan. Do the fingerprint scan. I'm all for that too. But get me through the damn thing without some weird guy having a bad day who's no, pissed fair. off or who's just checked out because he didn't get enough caffeine this morning and he's not actually looking at the passports that are coming through and scanning for the stamps or the not stamps because you shouldn't be able to leave the United States with one passport and go into another country. And technically, you can't. It's only if they miss the lack of a stamp that you can do that, right? Like, technically. I mean, that's a fair point when you're talking about security. We're talking about borders, which also leads me to the final topic, <laughs> Donald Trump. Sorry, oh, Piotis, Piotis, changing the way we travel in 2017, but borders, uh, are they going to tighten? Are the U.S. borders going to tighten? You know, like, you know, how much will the changes in passports change how we get through customs, whether you're a U.S. citizen or not? But I would say what I think is interesting, whatever side of the political divide you adhere to in the next presidential era... It's very easy to assume that it won't impact you one way or another. But I remember walking into the Chinese emb- the Chinese consulate in New York, the embassies in D.C., to get a visa. And I normally ask a facilitator, but I was like, I'll just run down. This is fine. How hard can this be? And I went into the Chinese consulate, and I looked at the pricing. And the pricing for a visa to China was over 100 bucks for an American passport and was 50 for everyone else. Because China didn't like how America was treating it at that moment. So it punished Americans with the temerity to want to visit China with a hefty visa fee. Mm -hmm. When I first went to India, I expected with the Commonwealth connection and a big, huge Indian community in Britain that, of course I can go visa-free. I mean, no, I have to get a visa because we don't let Indians come to Britain without getting visas. So it's a tit for tat. And I think visas and that international travel, as there's a change in foreign policy, be aware that you will feel it when if a country's annoyed with America, one of the things they do in that very passive aggressive way is jack up the visa prices. Yeah, and that's a very mechanical sort of aspect of it. And then there are other like less tangible aspects, which are if the international climate like we saw what happened in Istanbul over the you know on New Year's Year's, Eve really. And it's one of those things where how is the world going to react to that kind of thing? How is the United States going to react to that kind of thing? And then how are other countries going to react to the way that the United States reacts to that kind of thing? We reached out to a bunch of travel specialists, I guess, people that we work with, that we know that book travel for people around the country, or or sorry, around the world. And we kind of asked them, what is the feeling? What are you guys sensing out there? What, What are your organizations thinking about as this transition happens? And you know, their reactions were mixed, but a lot of them have trepidation. What were some, Laura, do you remember what were some of the things that they articulated as fears that they have? So I think generally people were saying that travel may be prohibitive, right? They say U.S. travelers should have a backup plan to where they plan to go, and people coming to the U.S. should have a backup plan. That was kind of the overarching theme. Um, Cuba came up a lot. People aren't really sure what the climate is going to be like under the new administration. Will Congress make any changes that kind of reverse what the Obama administration put in place in the last year and a half? So, you know, if there's a time to go to Cuba, it's probably right now. Um, Now, especially with the flights going as frequently as they are, and they're empty. That's another fun fact. But Mm -hmm. it's probably pretty easy to get a flight to Havana right now. 
they also talked a little bit, one interesting point, but Gary Leff, who um, runs Procure Award, um, he was talking about the new transportation secretary. And it's Elaine Chow, who was a former deputy secretary, and she also was a labor secretary under, I think, the first Bush administration. She's been involved with the second Bush administration, I think. Please fact check me on and that. And she's married to Mitch, Mitch mm-hmm. O'Connell. Married to Mitch O'Connell, yeah. So that is a slightly more, well, a lot more conservative secretary, DEPSEC. So what does that mean? Um, does that mean there are going to be restrictions? We don't know this. This is all speculation. Are there going to be restrictions on the Middle Eastern carriers that have been increasing their flights in and out of the U.S., you know, Qatar, Emirates, Etihad? Will U.S. domestic carriers have more access now? Will they be running more routes because there's this kind of inward turn towards, uh, you know, pro-America, pro our companies, right? So no one really knows what's going to happen, but that's the speculation. Well, I think the big comment is kind of just the U.S. is going to be viewed in a different way, and that's going to affect the country from a lot of different standpoints. Travel, yes, but travel, how does that translate economically? You know, in 2015, direct spending from resident and international travelers in the U.S. was $2.6 billion a day. Okay, and of the arrivals in the U.S., 77.5 million in 2015, 39.1 million come from Canada and Mexico. So again, that's a big question with this is, you know, these countries, we, we have a few stories that say, go to Canada, you know, Canada was one of our destinations of 2017, and also Mexico, which has been kind of polarizing, I guess, in this election. And so are these Polarizing in the election, but not polarizing from a travel point of view. Right. right? No, 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 I mean, not from a yeah, travel point of view. Excuse me. But you know, how is this going to play out in, tr- in economically? This huge well, people crossing people. borders. Exactly. Period. Yeah. But again, I think that's a good reminder. Yet another timely reminder of you need travel insurance. It's easy to think, oh, it'll be fine. I'm not going to break my leg in Spain. Well, no, you may not break your leg, but what happens if there's a governmental change and you have to cancel your trip? Because remember, it's so affordable. I have an annual travel policy that covers absolutely everything for 250 bucks. Obviously, we're lucky enough to travel for a living, so that is a good investment for me. But 30 bucks for that, you know, 10 days away, where it just indemnifies you against unexpected stuff, just pay for it. Yeah, I've started buying insurance for the first time, really, since... Admittedly, since I traveled abroad for like a year and a half. And the unofficial rule that my husband and I set is if we can't afford to lose the full cost of our trip, then we get insurance. Hmm. So it's like, you know, is it a weekend away? Then we probably don't get insurance. But if it's a 10-day, two-week trip, yes. I mean, it's, it's worth it for us. I also think, and this is definitely subjective, but I think there's also this sort of temperamental instability that we're entering into in a lot of parts of the world where... And the Istanbul attack was an example of that where you don't know how, I mean, the government is about to change hands, so to speak. And I think you don't know what the reaction is going to be to an incident in France or an incident in Turkey or an incident, you know, you don't know the domestic reaction to that's going to be. And it's conceivable that there's increasing volatility around that. And that volatility is yet another reason to sort of, or that potential volatility, we'll have to see as things go on, is yet another reason to insure yourself against, you know, getting caught out or having to, like, suddenly you can't travel to a certain place or suddenly it costs a lot more to travel to a certain place because of a policy change or whatever. Or people aren't happy to have you there. I mean, I was studying abroad during 9-11. I was living in Australia and... 
one of the big things that they told us was like, you know, don't travel in groups, don't make it clear that you are obviously American. Sadly, that's what they told us. And I worry that that will be the situation when Americans are traveling to some countries in 2017, 2018. But I would also say, I hate to Pollyanna this, but, you know, one of our destinations for 2017 was the Midwest, Mm -hmm. was rediscovering some of the places in the U.S. which perhaps get unfairly overlooked. We talked about Paisley Park in Minneapolis opening as a museum. I lived in Chicago. It's a city very close to my heart. If you're someone who doesn't want to have to deal with the vagaries of that and you want to sort of wait it out a little bit and see, I just see how things shake out. Make 2017 the year you do your great American trip. That place you've always wanted to go to, go to Mount Rushmore, one of my favorite places in the world. Hard to get to, worth the drive. I shed a tear when the national anthem started and it's not even my own national anthem. But not only the American Midwest, I mean, I think to sort of maybe wrap up on this note, that's another trend for 2017 that we're going to see is people going to more, I don't want to say second tier destinations, but, you know, not Spain because that's more popular. Maybe Portugal, you know, as we recommended, things like that. Well, Other because some of these top tier destinations yeah. are getting too crowded. I mean, like, would you really tell people to go to, you know, Reykjavik at this point? Not only too, yeah, too crowded, but also I think people assume that the higher profile, maybe the higher the risk, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although we were talking about this earlier, like a lot of the low profile places are starting to take risk management, are mm. starting to employ, you know, I was in Turin and they were having a New Year's party on one of the, on the Piazza San Carlo, which is a big, you know, central piazza. And all of the trash cans were blocked off and right. they had like, and then, you know, I mean, God bless Turin, like whatever, but it's not the kind of place you would think of as a target. So I think it's the kind of thing where at least that's an example of starting to see a little bit of maybe paranoia or maybe just precaution. You know, maybe it's just an abundance of caution. But it is okay. I have to say, I just would like to give people permission to think, you know, 2017, I'm just feeling like there's so much uncertainty. I feel like staying domestic. That doesn't make you not a good ambassador for travel. That doesn't make you a scaredy cat. It means you're like, okay, this year I feel like just not having that extra stress. I'm going to go. I'm from California. I've never been to Maine. I want to go to New Orleans. I've always said I should. I've never gone around to it. That's okay. Maybe celebrate that this year. Some of my favorite trips are exploring my adoptive country. It's okay. That's great. Are you daring me to argue against travel to Maine or New Orleans? (laughs) I knew I'd get you on that one. I'm glad you said ambassador too, though, because that's another thing that the specialists encourage. If you do go abroad, think of yourself as a U.S. ambassador. We are all Americans. Americans are a diverse set of people. You know, we have lots of different opinions. We are not all one party, clearly. So go and talk to people. And when the cabbies or the local guides ask you, like, what is going on in the U.S., you know, you give them a frank answer. You give them your answer, but that'll give them some perspective on what's happening here. And well, I think- most of us were out just recently. Like, did you have any episodes of this at all? Like, no, was this ever, all. Did this ever come up? My German neighbors came over and they were just sort of astounded. I mean, especially given the past history in Germany, you know, they could not understand, I don't know, why Hillary Clinton wasn't elected. You know, they see Merkel as a strong, powerful woman and they don't understand why that wouldn't happen in the U.S. But they just said kind of, you know, what's happening? What's what's the mood over there? And just talked a little bit. I ran into occasional curiosity about it and certainly in Italy there was a lot of, I think Berlusconi like left an impression on those folks and they just really feel like, what do we do with this stuff? You see, my last trip was to the U.K. and I think the two countries in the world the two developed countries in the world who've been in the crosshairs of news, 
2016 were the UK and the US. So in the UK, I don't perceive much curiosity about the US because the UK is still fascinated by itself. Yeah, I, I <laughs> Having been that. the country that is so reliable, it's sort of like the Volkswagen of countries, yeah. not super exciting, but boy, it'll get you there. It was a bonding moment, right? Like, <laughs> and the UK <laughs> turned into one of those countries that's like, this is a really fast sports car, but it might go off the road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I felt like that was a bonding moment in the UK where people were like, yeah, Brexit, Trump, eh. Crazy. I mean, do? you know, two countries that were in the crosshairs of history. And hopefully it will turn out to have been in a good way. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming and participating. Don't forget, you out there in the audience, to subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com where you can read about all of these trends and more. Uh, and we're going to be following these stories throughout the year. So keep up with us. A lot of these things will be changing. We're at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, and we're at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us, send us feedback, review us on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. Mark, where can people get in touch with you? I'd love to hear from you. We love hearing from listeners. You can reach me on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood with a K and two L's. And uh, Catherine? I'm on Twitter at KJ Lagrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. Laura? Twitter at Danon825 and Instagram at Laura underscore Redman. I have many names. And I am at Brad Rick, and that's it. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>